The following is a production of Entertainment Rating Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 15 of Shackles, Burlap, and Lies. I'm your host Ethan Gilson and I'm coming to you almost live from Pensacola, Florida. I am recording this evening, Monday, the night before we drop this on Tuesday. And my guest is also coming to you almost live from Metropolitan Atlanta. It is Mr. Elmer Veith, who is the uh, All right, hang on. First and foremost, for the record... You know this by now. The last Vith. name is Vife. <laughs> ah. See, I get him right away. <sighs> we'll get back to that. All right. Continue. Elmer Vithith? What is it? I'll reach through this connection and slap you silly. <laughs> He's better known only as one name. It is Elmer. He's the sales and marketing executive at Reliable Design, which is a trust manufacturer out of Texas. Uh, He's been around the block a few times, like a lot of us, and he is also the current secretary for ESTA. Um, And he's been heavily involved with standards writing, as well as obviously the organization of ESTA. Uh, And is someone who I've worked with for with years, both on events as well as training. So how are you doing tonight, Elmer? I'm doing great, Ethan. Thanks for having me join you. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. So, like everyone, you get the question right off the bat, who are you? Uh, well, you interested in Elmer Veith. I'm you know, with Reliable Design. We're uh, one of the newer trust companies in the block. We're really a, a custom fabrication company that you know, builds trust for people as well. Um, we have a whole industrial side of the company as, as well, but Uh, I joined the company in October of 2018, um, really with the the focus of of growing the entertainment side of the company. Uh, I I think I've done a a decent job with that. Uh, And yes, I've been around the industry for a while now. I've been doing this full time as my like source of income for 20. Well, it'll be later this month. It'll be 24 years since I uh, worked my first day in a, a production shop. August 21st. Good grief. Um, so I've worked, you know, I started out in uh, working in lighting shops, moved over to rigging, moved into sales. Um, I, I worked for Atlanta Rigging Systems for a number of years, building up their sales division, uh, you know, slinging chain hoists and control systems and rigging hardware. Uh, then I moved on to Total Structures uh, in 2006, I think it was. Um, he- heading up their Eastern U.S. operations. They were looking to, um, their, the company was kind of in a rebuilding phase and they were looking to expand on the East Coast. And um, Adrian Forbes Black, who I think you've had on uh, just the other week, um, he and I had a relationship uh, from when he was over in the U.K. with Tomcat and CM. Uh, and he came to the States uh, for the guys with Total. And, uh, you know, you're looking for a sales guy and I reached out and, uh, we said, Hey, let's see what happens. So I was with the total up through, uh, August of 2018. 
Um, but before all that, I actually have a, I went to college from a small school in Pennsylvania called Kutztown University. And I uh, got a degree in telecommunications, TV and video production. Uh, and somehow took a wrong turn in life and made poor choices. And hey, here I am. Kind of a rigger, but not really. I'm you not a rigger. Riggers. Yeah, I support. I, I I sell them the stuff they need, or I hire them to build the crazy stuff I draw. And you do a lot of education. You and I have done uh, roof schools in the past, where uh, I'll do the practical rigging portion, and you'll talk about the roof yeah, structures. I, 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 what, we did our first school together, I think, twenty twelve, twenty thirteen. Little, I think. It was around there. It, about 15. I think I did three years of it. Is that what 15, it was? Wow. Yeah, wires crossed up. I don't know. We've done a, I, we did a bunch of them, though. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and it, 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 it started with a couple of third-party trainings that I did with Adrian, and then started, uh, you guys invited me out to Ventura, where Total Structures uh, was headquartered, and we did yep. some out there. And as we talked about with Adrian in that episode, uh, the trust manufacturers is like uh, musical chairs. There's always a chair getting taken away and people shift around and move. And all of a sudden you find you're sitting in the same chair again with someone else that you were sitting yeah. with uh, a couple of years ago. I've always said, I mean, you know, the, the people talk about how the, the moving light guys, all, or it's all the same people just doing business cards. I'm like, you guys got nothing on the trust world. It, it, I mean, the very foundations of the industry are based on that model. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't remember if I mentioned this before on a podcast, but there's a joke that uh, Elmer and Adrian and uh, Jeff Reeder and I have kicked around, which is, you know, starting a trust company is not a very hard thing. If you have $25,000, you spend a bunch of money on an engineer to designing a bunch of product, you buy some material and you get a good welder and you start making product. It is not a uh, highly sophisticated uh, business to start. Although there is a lot of sophistication in some of the creative solutions to some of the challenges. And what I was going to say and kind of pose as a question is your client base for many years has considered you to be one of the leading salespeople for custom solutions for their needs. Uh, Total Structures for many years while you were there was considered to be the go-to company for roof systems specifically. And that's what made Total a little different for a long time was it wasn't a trust manufacturer who sold roofs it was a structure company who happened to use trust to build those structures. So they were happy to sell you trust, but you weren't looking to sell sticks of trust as your business model. You were looking to create solutions for the needs of your clients. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that goes back to the very, very foundations of, of, I mean, the, the industry as a whole and, and, and total as a company and, and a lot of the companies in, in the industry. I mean, you know, it started out with, you know, a, a production manager for a band needed a thing made and somebody made it. Okay, great. You know, and, you know, in the case of Total, you know, it, it for as many rooftops as they built, they were never a standard product. Um, every, you know, just about every one of them was a little bit different than somebody else's because they get used different ways. So you do different things. And trust, trust is just a, a fast and easy tool. Um, you know, customers, you know, if, if you want 100% custom, 
uh, one-off, never been done before, will never be done again. There's a nice little fabrication company in uh, Lidditz, Pennsylvania that'll happily help you out with that kind of thing. Um, and the budget's going to, you know, match that, that kind of approach. On the other hand, if you, um, you know, have a budget you need to stay in, you already have some parts and you need to build something odd and crazy, um, then, all right, let's start with, you know, that's when really the trust companies come through. Uh, and again, it's more like a total uh, or, you know, what we do at Reliable Design. That um, they're, it, it's, you know, trust is, you know, a module of trust is like a Lego block. You know, it's, you know, how you, it's how you put it together that, that, that makes it really cool. Right. Um, you know, and you, know, you can take, you know, a, a, a truckload of standard straight pieces of truss, um, but then throw in, you know, one pallet of odd angle corner blocks and some side adapters. And next thing you know, you have this amazing bespoke structure that no one's ever seen before. You know, for, right. and your you know your investment in custom parts is a few thousand dollars, and if you scrap them after the show, big deal. You still have ninety five percent of the thing to go and do something else with. Um, you know, and that's that's that was the thing. You know, it's you know, again you've talked to Adrian, and even now it's you know trust is something you do when it's you know it it, it feel, you know if you have nothing else going on, right? You build trust for stock um, because someone's going to need it. Somebody always needs some more 10 foot sticks of truss or five foot sticks of truss. Um, you know, it's it, the, the custom stuff. It's what keeps you blood pumping. And it's, you know, and, and for a lot of companies, it's, it's where the real profit margin is. Uh, right. you know, we have to say it's, it is show business. Um, yep. You know, if one of the things that has changed since I've you know, been, I, you know, I started out as a general user, became a dealer, moved into the manufacturing side. And that's over the course of, you know, 20, 24 years. Um, and, and the really, the biggest shift, you know, in the last 10 to 12 years has been that tr standard straight, boring day in and day out trust has become a commodity in many cases. Um, you know, you can, there's half a, you know, probably half a dozen shops you can call up right now and just, you know, price match to see who, who wants to cut the best deal for volume. Um, yeah, and that's great. That's a great for business. Most, most part, a dimensional truss, a 12 by 12, 20 half by 20 half, general purpose, standard duty, medium duty, that bolted connection mm -hmm. type of truss that we use, the capacity for all of those different manufacturers are going to be close to each other. Right. You're, you would be able to bolt them together. Now, we can talk maybe at some point about the whole well, well, intermixing you know, let's, of. Let's, let's save that for later because we, we should talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it is a commodity. And, and the other thing that you mentioned is it's a good investment because if you maintain your trust, if you don't abuse it, you don't allow your people to drag one end of the trust on the ground and muck it up and you don't overload it, the trust should last you a very long time, which means if you take care of it, it's going to make you money. Partner, trust... don't, don't tell them that. It's, no, 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 no. <laughs> Use it once, throw it away, buy a new stick. That's the safe, yeah, that's the best plan. Best plan. Out it's, there. it's a consumable. It's like gaff it's tape. Like, and it's tie line, exactly. Yeah. But that's uh, the thing. I mean, <laughs> a 10-foot stick of 12-inch truss is going to be in the $800 range. Oh, is I that, wish. Is it less than that? If you go back to the late 80s, that's what it was. Um, okay. at, at this point, 10-foot... Um, you know, good old fashioned bolt plate, 
eighth inch cords, um, you're going to be somewhere in, in the $500 range. Okay. Um, you know, that, that's, again, that's the commoditization of it. Right. Exactly. It's, you know, people are driving down the price and people are trying yeah. to make money. I mean, if, if you want to, you know, if you want to go over the stuff that is, you know, imported from overseas, you can save yourself some money on it. I think it would be interesting for people to know in the manufacturing process that with all the automation in industry, that most of this trust that is made domestically here in the U.S. is still hand-welded. Oh, not, not domestically, worldwide. There yeah. is almost no automated welding used. Um, it's 99% TIG welding. Uh, MIG is used to put end plates on truss in most shops if they're doing bolt plate truss because it's faster. Um, but just about anywhere you go in the world, whether it's European style conical truss, whether it's bolt plate truss, any of that, it's it's a guy under a welding hood. Right. Um, some of the conical manufacturers have have an automation step to put the conicals on the cords. That's it. Right. Um, that otherwise it is all it's physical labor. Yep. So, I, you know, we joke about the what it costs to start a trust manufacturing company, but it, it really is the labor, it's the people, the materials, depending on politics, the cost of aluminum and where you get it from and supply and demand on that will change the pricing a little bit. But it's it's mostly labor once you have the design. And yeah. that's that's the other thing. The, the fundamental engineering behind trust doesn't change significantly. Different well, it's, manner. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, it, it's, yeah, yeah, we can talk about that because, you know, look at the product. You know, again, we go back to, you know, we'll go back to Adrian's, you know, history session. I, I, people know, have heard my, people have taken my classes, have heard my, some of my spiel. Um, it was all comes from the same guys originally. And even when you get into the, the conical style stuff, it can't, it comes from the same designers. It was people liberally borrowing ideas from one another. Right. You know, so if you're all using the same alloy material, the same science material, the same basic pattern, um, the same welding process, uh, how do you, how would you, why would you expect there to be wildly different capacities between one product and another? Right. And it, and it, and there's different different variables that manufacturers can play with. So when we do a trust training, we'll talk about when you're welding material together, you have heat affected affected zone. And you can play with, is it a better choice to try to separate overlapping heat affected zones versus not lining the diagonals up perfectly? And that is well, a choice. That... It's nice well, to say that now, but the reality is when, you know, when, uh, you know, when Graham Thomas and, and John Walters and those guys, you know, put down the first couple of sticks of truss, they laid out what made sense. And, and that was right. the pattern that stuck for the next 15, 16 years um, until they actually, you know, really looked at it and talked to engineers and the knowledge, you know, grew and they realized, oh, we're, we're misnoting. You know, none of the diags intersect on the cord in the right place. And we have all these really weird spots. And you know, whether they came up with it or the engineer said, hey, guys, you know, we can make this better. I, I, I don't know where that came from. And, and unfortunately, Graham and, and John are gone. So. I don't know that we'll ever get that answer, um, but that's the, really the only difference. And even then, it's only a ten, about a ten percent difference right. from from one pattern to the other. Right. So I, I think the point I was trying to make was that 
we're not going to discover some engineering principle that revolutionizes trusts because that's not going to be just for us. That would be for all trusts. However, the material composition is the potential area where you could have a great advantage, e.g. carbon fiber, which some oh. manufacturers have played with, but there's a brittle aspect of it. So whatever this mysterious anontanium material is that's super light, super strong and makes trust smaller, but we can carry more capacity, the engineering component is going to stay fairly constant as far as we know. So yeah, all these different products are the same. Long story short, we're getting to, it becomes a commodity where you drive the price down because it all works together and it's about how much product can you get as a consumer for what you have for money. In many cases, yes. Yes. Speaking of technology, is there... Is, is there something that you see or would like to see in trust manufacturing to advance the industry? Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, and, and I've had some discussions. We, we, there, there, there may have been some conversations over drinks a few times on this. One of the things that, that does, you know, drive us, drive us a little crazy sometimes is, you know, why is there this variance in the engineering? You know, like I'm looking at it going, you know, from the standpoint of, you know, somebody who's worried about the budgets from a manufacturing standpoint, it'd be great if we all just worked to the same engineering and said, oh, here's a standard pattern. Here's the standard load table for the pattern. Here you go. Stop worrying about it. Um, And then it comes down to price and customer service. Crazy idea. I know. Um, I mean, the biggest thing, you know, beyond that, the. The biggest challenge we really have in the industry is is dealing with it's, it's video walls. Quite frankly, um, you know these things are big and ugly, and they're heavy, and people want to go in easier and faster, and they want to build them bigger than the last one, and all this. And it's like dealing with that. We you know we we've yeah. There's different ideas. I mean, you, you know we've all seen. You know, a truss with an extra cord added in the either in the middle of a face or even down the center of the truss um, to try and make it easier to hang a video wall. Um, you know, and the the big challenge is is you know as we know with with a truss or any beam, as you stretch it out between points it, and you put weight on it, it's going to deflect. Right. And video walls don't like that. Um, yep. and, I, and I've had situations where you know someone was like, "Well, I, I need a truss for a video wall." Okay, great, and you know, we sent them. Send them a video. Uh, you know, uh, you know. They told me what the wall was, what the points were. Here you go. Here's trust. Works no problem. And they're like, this trust doesn't work. Well, why not? Well, it's deflecting. Well, yes, it, it does. That trust deflects. Well, but I can't put the video wall on it. Well, you have to have adjustment in there. Um, you know, get, getting coming up with some way to deal with that, whether it's a you know a variable means of adding preload to the you know pre cambering the truss so you can you know. You know, it's going to deflect, but you want it to deflect back to flat. If we could do right. something like that, that'd be sweet. Something that was easily adjusted and modified, that'd be amazing. Yeah. And um, what? And 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 for the our, our rookies in the group, uh, a good example of that is if you're driving down the highway and you see an empty flatbed semi truck, you'll actually notice that the middle of that flatbed curves up, 
So that's the pre-canter. So when pre you put yeah. the load on, yep, when you load it, it ends up flat. So that's what we're talking about with the truss. Yeah, but but you, th you, know, you start thinking about the challenges, though. I mean, that we're just talking about a project the other day about this. Like, oh, it'd be great if we could do this. Well, hold on. Well, how much weight are you putting on it? You know, you might be doing the same 30-foot span, let's say, um, all the time. The wall's always 30-foot high, but in some cases, it's going to be an extra five rows tall. Right. Oil, how much pre? How much do I have to bump the middle up now then to get that to get to be flat with those five extra rows? Ooh, yeah. Um, you know, and I think you had, I think you had Jeff Reader on here a while back, and I'm sure he explained that you know engineering is a whole lot of well, we think this is what it's going to do, um, or you know we're pretty sure of this. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, that that makes it challenging uh, because yeah. you know it, it, you know here, here's an, here's another little dirty secret for everyone. When you read that load table, as I sit at my desk looking at a truss tag, um, when you look at the load table that the manufacturer provides, and they better be able to provide one, they're also supposed to tell you how much it deflects at whatever that rated load is. That's a calculated number based on a typically ideal situation. The reality, right. when you actually get a piece of truss, you know, a span of truss together, and you load it like that, you're probably going to see more deflection than the chart says. Sorry, just going to happen because it's it's variable. It's a variance thing, um, which actually would be a great point to discuss. Um, you, know, we, you know, we build a truss to 10 feet. Well, aluminum has this really bad habit when you weld it. When aluminum gets hot from welding, it shrinks. So if you build yeah. it, if you take a truss, cut the cords exactly to 10 feet and weld it up, when you're done, it's going to be about probably a 16th of an inch short of 10 feet. Depending on, but remember, we went back to it's a it's a person with a welding torch, you know, doing this work. They don't always, not every welder welds at the same rate. And quite frankly, if their morning coffee hasn't kicked in, maybe they're moving a little slower than usual. So you can get variance within a truss where there's more heat put into one area than another. And you'll get more shrinkage one area over another, and you'll get a little bit of wonkiness in right. the truss. It's still within tolerance. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, but they're not these perfect, and we, and we run into this. We have people like, well, the truss isn't straight. It isn't perfect. Well, no, it's a fabricated product. Right. You, you notice that with uh, third-party lift points that are mm -hmm. made from a solid block, originally when those came out, their tolerances were so tight yep. and based on, a, let's say, a 12-inch truss that depending on where you put it on a 10 foot piece of truss, if you need, you went near the middle where the horizontal uh, spreader bars are, that truss is actually bowing in towards the middle because those spreaders yep. would have shrunk. And again, you said a 16th of an inch, but if that's your tolerance on this milled solid ingot of aluminum, that's not the lift point, it doesn't fit. Yeah. And then you're like, what happened to my truss? Did I damage it? But it, it's normal. It can be deceiving. Well, it's, you know, if you if you ever look at a truss circle, if you ever have the, the opportunity to inspect or, or, or take some measurements on a, a fully assembled circle truss, um, even when it's sitting on the floor, start pulling measurements directly across it. And it will average out to whatever the diameter is that it was built at. So if it's a 20-foot circle, it'll average out to 20. Um, some spots might be a quarter inch under. Some might be a quarter inch over. You know, it, it is that that's what it is um, there that you just can't get because you, you have springage. And even if you do that, you know, shove the thing across the floor when you're putting it together. You're monkeying it around trying to get everything lined up. You'll you'll kick it 
in or out more or less. And as guys start tightening bolts, it'll it'll do all kinds of crazy stuff. You'll sit there chasing your tail on it. The thing that used to to make me laugh, some you know, chuckle to myself, is uh, the lighting company. We owned a twenty foot diameter circle truss, and without fail, we'd say, "Hey, we want to put a cross in the middle of it." So you would add four corner blocks mm -hmm. and then you'd start working. And as you were getting near the end of bolting it together, things weren't lining up by a fair amount. Yep. And, and you'd sit there and then finally you say, so what did you do? Well, we added four corner blocks. So you took a 20 foot diameter circle and you added four feet to it roughly. Very roughly because a corner block isn't a square. Correct. And, and so you'd say, so what did you do? Oh, we changed the diameter. So it's no longer 20 feet, but you have these, whether it's quarter or eighth segment pieces that are designed to fit together in a 20 foot diameter. And now you're trying to make it 24 feet yep. in reality, even though you haven't shifted things out that much, but yep. it just, it doesn't work and it, it would drive you nuts. Well, and that's why, you know, whenever you're assembling grids and stuff, whenever I'm doing a, a you know, an installation, if I'm, you know, on site doing a commissioning for a system, I see crews, but I'm like, put the bolts through, turn the nut on, two threads, that's it. You see some guy spinning all the way down, reaching for tools, like, no, 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 not even finger tight, not even halfway. Two, I, I want the nuts to not fall off when we start jacking this thing around in five minutes. Um, and sure enough, you get to the end and it won't line up and I'll, all right, go back to the first corner and loosen all those bolts I told you not to tighten in the first place. All right. Okay, now we can get to straighten out. Um, I, I think I know, I, if, if I can jump in here, something I want to bring up, we yeah. talk about the tolerance on truss. Um, a question and I think you've asked it of me, and I, I know we, we bait each other in classes with these questions, but um, you, you know, when you're teaching, teaching rigging, you're talking about design factor and hardware, the design factor in a shackle or the design factor for wire rope and things like that. And they're very specific and they're very defined and they're very detailed. Well, why is that? What, what, what's your what's the reason that you have such specific information on a shackle? Well, it, it the answer is because there are established standards, and usually that's through consensus bodies. So, for a lot of the industrial lifting stuff, it's the American Society of Mechanical Engineers (ASME). So, for instance, and I, I happen to be teaching a class, which is why I'm in Florida. And so we were talking about this today. ASME B30 has to do with lifting hardware. And the 30.2345 is different groups of hardware. So manufacturers over a long course of time have established that shackles, for instance, under 150 tons shall all be designed with a design factor of at least five to one. And that is the appropriate application of a device that is being used for lifting other material. But here's the thing to think about, though. Shackles are forged, correct? Correct. So you have a very specific die. Material is forced into it. It's heat treated. And it's a very simple go or no-go when it comes out. And it's checked. You can take a caliper to it. You can measure it. If, the, if it isn't within tolerance, it goes back to the scrap pile, right? Yep. Imagine doing that with truss. Yeah. Now, when you look at, you know, the, uh, the structure design and engineers, I'm sure Jeff brought up the AW, the, the ADM, the aluminum design manual. Um, this is the, the, this is the code book that, that's, that sets the rules about designing, you know, items in aluminum. 
And there are design factor requirements in there. I think it's I think it's 1.95 for all attachments, which means that any you know if you if you're welding two elements together in the module, that that weld is, uh, is, has to be designed with a design factor of 1.95 for whatever the maximum stress it can see. And then the the, the material itself I think is 1.6, which are, these are not huge design factors, but okay, we have numbers there. But those are controlling things like shear force, you know, in in a member or or or, or tension in a member. Um, and if if this is a good one, if so we'll make sure you have a a load table to put share with people. If you look at load tables, when you get out into the maximum spans of a truss, you're getting out to thirty foot or forty foot and twelve inch, forty and fifty foot on twenty inch things like that. What you start to see is, regardless of the allowed loading the maximum deflection remains around the same. Right. Because that's what that, because what we get to, and this is what, what, what the, the tr tradition has been done in the bolted truss market um, when you started in the UK and came here, is that we controlled the allowed loading based on the amount of deflection. And again, because this started out with, you know, the original engineers and this stuff were guys that engineered buildings. Um, and you know, the theory is if you don't want to walk across the floor without feeling like you're going to fall over, then, you know, this, we should probably do the same thing with these trusses too. We, you know, we've all seen trusses smile when they're loaded up. That's part of that's the deflection thing. And we get really nervous when we see really big smiles. Um, and, and you see that a lot in, in like the, the European style trusses because they don't worry about deflection that much. Um, and, and some of the nominal 12 inch size European trusses, they're fine with 100% of the height of the trusses deflection on the maximum span. Right. And I think it, it uh, we'll go down the, the rabbit hole of engineering a little bit. It's too bad Jeff wasn't in the background. So when people say, okay, so what is deflection? We know we're talking about a beam and how the middle sags or bends under load towards where their load's being applied. Mm -hmm. So a, a truss on two points, hang a center point load, it's going to bend in the middle. But what is that an indication of? And I don't know if you know the answer, but I would pose it that way. What is deflection an indication of, or what are we measuring? Well, I mean, it's, it's so, you know, again, we, we go back to when, when we, whether it's a, a solid, you know, steel I-beam, we were just talking about those the other day for a project, um, or, or it's a fabricated module like a truss, whether it's a, you know, a building roof truss, or, you know, what it, the reality in the world is, is that we, we cannot build every structure in such a way that it's always going to remain perfectly flat. If we, if that was our goal, every member, every member for everything that gets built would just be enormous. Right. Um, you know, so we, we, in, in architectural world and engineering world, they look at, at deflection as, um, length of span divided by something. Um, right. We most commonly use L over 180, which is also, I think, what's in the uh, commercial uh, business, the commercial building code for, for floors. And basically, it's like, you know, if you have deflection of L over 180, you don't really notice it. Um, but again, we, we can't make these things so that they don't deflect. Now, you can, you can, and there's two things, and you end up with one of two situations. One, everything is so incredibly overbuilt. Um, you know, think about it. If you wanted to have a, a 40 foot span uh, between two points supporting lights and have zero deflection, um, I know that a 40 foot span of 12 inch truss has about 2.7 inches of deflection when you load it to full 
which is about 950 pounds, uniformly distributed load. That means 950 divided by 40 spaced one foot apart. Um, if you wanted zero, that truss is going to be seven or eight feet tall. It's going to have, have to have connections with absolutely no movement in them. Um, and it has to be light enough that it doesn't make itself bend. We, we were right. some of this, there's a big steel truss for the, the big uh, Brown United rooftops. The 80, this came up because we were talking about what would happen if we made a truss out of uh, chrome molly tubing. Don't ask. I don't know how we got on the subject. <laughs> this is what we do in our off time. Yeah. And it was pointed out that that 80 foot span on a brown, on the old Brown United roofs or whoever owns them. I think Gallagher has one. Um, it's a five foot deep truss. It's about two and a half feet wide. I think the main members are like two by four or three by four steel. Mm-hmm. Um, it's massive. And it deflects under its own weight at 80 feet, six inches at the center. Right. So we have deflection because we can't not have it. Right. And uh, so, and because it is something that we can visually measure usually and, and, Accuracy of measurement is a different topic altogether. Sure. But it's related, and I was talking about this earlier, that in material properties, there are two data points that engineers are concerned with. Yield, which is when a material loses its elasticity. So think of a pipe, you pull down on it, it goes back to the original shape, Mm -hmm. it's fine. You bend it, and it does not return to its original shape, it has met its yield point. Right. You hit yield and strength. then right. And the other one is ultimate strength, or when I say bifurcation, it is no longer in one piece. Shears. Yep. Exactly. So measuring deflection is a way in which we can measure if we're getting near yield. So if we stay within the deflection, we know we're staying away from that point, we know we're not damaging the truss. Right. The one thing to say on that, it works pretty darn well with aluminum because aluminum has a very linear response. Yep. You bend it, you bend it, you bend it. It, it, it keeps, bend, you know, the more load you apply, the more it bends. Um, the, the fun of steel is that with steel, you hit the yield point and then it stops doing anything and it seems like it's just fine. And then all of a sudden it explodes explodes it just comes apart and then the world is very very bad and another thing again we were talking about this earlier today was and the delta or the difference between yield and ultimate strength on those two materials is also different aluminum Mm -hmm. is a much smaller distance between those two steel is a lot larger yes so you take a steel pipe and bend it you're going to bend it quite a lot of distance before it actually breaks you do that same thing to aluminum pipe you're not going to make it as far just based on the material characteristics. Right. And the other, yeah, that, the other fun part of aluminum is, is um, fatigue. Yep. So you keep cycling that bend. So, you know, it, it easy to do. I, we actually have aluminum business cards because, you know, my, my boss, you know, is, has a you know, big laser engraver. So we have, you know, metal business cards. Why not? Great teaching tool for that. You know, bend yep. it once. It's fine. I think it takes about 15 cycles and I can tear the card in half. Yeah. It's uh, the, the old paper clip trick. Yep. Uh, bend it enough. It will fatigue. It will break. Um, so here's the question. Besides the obvious answer of its weight, 
why do we use aluminum in truss? Why why aren't we just using steel if it responds better or is I have, stronger? I have a whole slide on, I have about three slides on this. So in general, steel versus aluminum is a relationship of threes. Okay, if I take a two inch by one eighth inch diameter piece of material in aluminum and in steel, the steel is going to be three times as strong as that piece of aluminum. That means that I could actually make the truss out of steel that was one third the thickness. So let's see if my calculator is working tonight. Five divided by three. We're talking about, we can get down to, no, it's not right. 0.125 divided by three. Yeah. So my calculator is messed up. Cool. Oh, zero, zero, four. There we go. So we get down to 0.04 hundredths of an inch. And I can get the same strength out of steel. Cool. Except that if I drop it, it's going to cave in. Um, steel is three times as heavy. So if I stay with that one eighth inch thick material, two inch by one eighth aluminum is just under a pound, 0.9 something. Um, that steel is going to be 2.7 pounds a foot. Yep. Um, the aluminum will be three, to, depending on how much of it you're buying, and one versus the other, three to five times as expensive as the steel. Mm, we don't like that. Um, it's going to take two to three times as long to fabricate it in steel versus aluminum. People don't realize that. To get really nice welds on steel takes a lot more time. Plus, it's going to weigh more, which means I need more shop labor to move it around to get it built. So a, a 10 foot stick of 12 by 12 bolted truss takes, depending on the shop, three to four hours to manufacture. If I was doing it out of steel, I could expect that to take five to seven hours. Yep. Um, oh, and then I have to do something with the steel after I'm done with all that so that it doesn't turn red on its first job. It has to right. be finished. Aluminum develops that lovely little coat of oxide that we all scrub off with steel wool and you know aluminum wheel cleaner to make it pretty for a couple of days. Um, yep. Steel, got to do something with it immediately. Um, so that's why we don't use steel. You know, it's wonderfully strong, but it's overkill. Um, you know, do you really need, let's say, if we're, so if we're talking, you know, rules of three, if, if I can get 950 pounds on a 40 foot span of 12 by 12, we're talking about what? 3000 pounds on that same span in steel. Yep. Okay. Well, it's probably also going to deflect about six or seven inches, which isn't going to be very pretty. Um, and it's going to weigh a ton. So now all of a sudden my half ton motors just became one ton motors, um, to hang the same amount of gear. And I actually probably can't even hang as much gear even with upgrading the motors enough. Right. So there's a lot of reasons to not use, I mean, steel has its place and I've built stuff out. I've built towers, uh, for, I've built ground support towers for audio delays and, and for rooftops out of it. And it's wonderful stuff for certain things. Um, but aluminum is just a whole lot simpler in a lot of ways. Yep. And again, like you mentioned, we're a business. So yeah. how much does it cost to ship the product it, that weight on your vehicles? Yeah. I, I think as an industry, we, especially smaller companies who own straight trucks, we probably overload our trucks quite often because it's just, hey, if it fits, it ships. Yeah. And we don't pay Absolutely. attention to the fact that your average cable trunk is probably 500 pounds and you put a bunch of those on the truck. Yeah. 
Well, and, you know, think about it. What, what's, you know, a road case with, you know, because I know the numbers off the top of my head will use CM load stars. Two one-ton, 60-foot of lift uh, with all the accessories. You're at 350 pounds. Well, 60, yeah, 100, 100 pounds for the body, 65 pounds for the chain, 330 plus the accessories, 360, case is 150. There's 500 pounds in a box. Yep. Um, you know, that 26 foot, that 24 foot box truck maxes out at 26,000 pounds. That plus truck minus. is yep. trust minus, you know, 25,999, 25,995 is a class C license. So most 24s non-CDL are going to have that. And the truck itself weighs 15,000 pounds. You get 10,000 pounds to play with. Uh, 20 motor cases. Yep. That's not much. So, you know, and then where's the shackles? Yep. And all the other, and, and your steel truss, which started the whole yeah. thing, which yeah. is it's heavier. So it takes more truss space. So it's all the economy of scale and trying to find that sweet spot of strength, cost, durability, manufacturing process. Well, and, and, and you're missing the biggest one. What does everybody else have? If I need more of it, where am I going to go? Compatibility. You know, and you touched on this earlier about, you know, you, about whether or not you can bolt trust together. And I, you know, my, it's my comment about why, you know, why isn't there standard engineering? Um, you know, why is that a concept that, that people seem resistant to? You know, we all, let's, we don't like it, but it's reality. If it was a big deal, if, if trust manufacturers were really, really worried about their product being intermixed with another manufacturer's, they wouldn't have the same bolt pattern. Right. Plain and simple. At, at one point um, in Europe, when conical truss was kind of new, there were, in fact, different patterns of conicals for that reason. Yeah, they didn't want things intermixing. So they made it that you couldn't intermix them. I don't know if that's still the case or not. Um, and I remember at one point there was a, a company that started importing product from overseas that um, touted the fact, this is going back a long time now, but they touted the fact that their conicals could be used with anyone else's. I was like, I, I, can't, remember, I can't remember even who it was now. It was just like, that kind of defeats the point of that, doesn't it? Right. <laughs> I don't even know if that company is still in business now, but I was just like, well, that's an interesting approach. Well, it was interesting when when I worked at the lighting company and it was acquired by the big national corporation, we replaced all of our trusts. And we for years, we had been a, a James Thomas mm -hmm. house and not for any particular reason. But at some point we bought 40 feet of 12 inch box trusts. And it, as you said, as a commodity, it was the best price. And then you buy more and more. And then all of a sudden you're like, hey, might as well stay yeah. in the, the same well, again, you, with. you build a relationship with your salespeople. Sure, so absolutely. Your account, absolutely. So after the acquisition, all the trust re was replaced. Most of it. Mm -hmm. um, which was not a bad thing because the trust, some of the pieces of trust were almost 25 years old. And we, uh, they went with Tomcat mm -hmm. because that's what all the other locations had. Makes sense. Yep. But we still had some oddball pieces whether it was a base plate or a corner block or a hinge piece for a self climber mm -hmm. that maybe the design on the james thomas was a little we liked it or whatever the case may be 
It, and, it was admitted. It was lost in the corner for six months and no one said anything. Absolutely. Exactly. No one knew it was there. Um, <laughs> and you would bolt the John, James Thomas. And of course, we now know they're the same well, company. Now they're the same company. Or they're yeah. all, right. But the bolt holes weren't lining up. And so I thought it was funny. And I called uh, our friend, Will Todd, and said, hey, look, what's the deal with that? And he goes, well, technically, the James Thomas and the Tomcat truss is about a four millimeter difference in the alignment of the holes. So depending on what you're working on, and the reason why sometimes you don't notice it is if you're working with older truss, especially James Thomas, they'd have instead of just the round holes, they had the diamond yep. shaped holes and older trust the holes have elongated after wear and tear so you had a little more slop so maybe you were just getting lucky and things lining up but off of the jig or you know out of the factory there's a slight difference but that's i think an anomaly i think everyone else for the most oh, part is six probably point, pretty close 6.725 Maybe it's, I think it's a six point. Oh, sorry, six point seven five, hole centers on twelve inch. Yep. Um, that, no, you know where the uh, those those diamond holes are from, don't you? Cams. Yes, cam locks. I, I have a box of them actually, and here's a shout out to our friend. You mentioned the company Gallagher earlier, Gallagher Staging out in uh, L.A. Joe Golden, who's a, a friend of ours who works out there. Uh, Joe, I have not forgotten. I have in my basement the cams that I'm going to send you. It's only been 28 months, so I, All right. I'll okay. get them to you. But, but Joe, he lost one of them. I swear, because I want them from my damn collection. <laughs> I, I actually had someone recently ask me if I knew where to get those still, and I'm like, uh, I, I'm sorry, my source is out of business. I I can neither confirm nor deny that I may have a, a par 64 box lamp box of some cams kicking around my wow. house. Um, but what the hell are we talking about, Elmer? For the our, our listeners at home, oh. so there was a design at one point, a, a an idea to speed up the connection process. Well, it, 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 it yeah, it was this was done. Um, God, who was was telling me they actually had them on a tour. Oh, it was, I was on, I was on a, uh, a social and Michael Sapsis was on there and he was on a tour. They had him. He said, by the second date, they tore them all out. It was horrible. No, the idea was just like everything else. You know, we went to, we built pre-rig trust to make, you know, put lamps on faster. We, we used, you know, 19 pins, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, the idea with the trust guys, we'll, we'll use these, these spring loaded quarter turn fasteners called cam lock fasteners. And these things were you know, half inch shaft. Um, and the, the bolt would live in the end plate, one end of the truss, and then the other, the, the truss would made to had a, a cutout for this kind of T-shape to go through. You'd go in and you'd lock it in place. Do you want to tell them what the problem is with it? Well, I was going to say, for a point of reference, it's actually a very common design in a lot of LED walls for their interlocking yes. yeah, connection. They, yeah, but not like these cam locks. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Is there any way else to sum it up as they sucked? <laughs> that, that's so. Yeah, that's that, that's the summary. They're horrible. Um, the The issue was the the in order to get the same strength as a regular truss bolt, you used two on twenty inch truss and larger. Anyway, not a twelve inch one, twenty inch and larger. You needed two per um, mating plate to get the same strength as a five eighths bolt. 
and also act as a backup in case something went wrong because the connection and its adequacy relied on the user paying attention to how hard it was to make the connection to make sure that there was enough. The, the, what it was was the T-bar and the thing that it, that it engaged with this, this quarter turn nut, you could adjust it. There was an Allen screw in the end and you adjusted the tension on it by screwing it in or out. So then that's how you knew that the connection was good. If you were, the thing almost, you know, broke your wrist to make the connection, you were set. So of course, what do you know, guys do when they're in a hurry? They backed a bunch of tension off of all of them. So it was quick to make the connections and get the trusses in the air. But that, as you said earlier, <laughs> introduced a bunch of slop or variation well, into it, the truss. What it means is you didn't have a full, a full connection. You, the truss right. was face to face. Yeah, it was just. Uh. But there, there's the answer to a question that all of our listeners did not know they had, which is when you look at 20 and a half inch truss from certain manufacturers, there are two holes. And a lot of people who don't spend a lot of time with truss say, oh, well, if there are two holes, you got to put two bolts in. Nope. It is it is a carryover from the camlock design period. And basically, as you said, it's what we've always done. It doesn't hurt to be there, so we just leave it. It, it is and a, actually it is a vestigial connection. Yep. And it actually turns out pretty well that with larger truss, it's a good place to stick your spud wrench if you're yep. trying to line things up and you're not occupying one of the yep. holes you're trying to use. And the other place that comes in and saves your butt. Um, is on a lot of ground support systems where you have a sleeve block. There are times when you cannot get a bolt and a nut in the outer hole on some of them. So that in, that inner hole saves you sometimes, as long as the engineer says it's fine to use it. If you're talking about a, a three and a half inch difference, four inch difference on the centers, then they're like, eh, you're probably okay. Right. Um, it, it'll it'll save your tail sometimes on a tight connection. Yep. Yes, silly, just things that are lost to the ages. So as a as 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 a manufacturer, when you get asked the question of, hey, I have a bunch of trusts in my inventory, but I have a relationship with you. I want to buy the trusts from the company you're working for. What do I do about my load charts? I now have uh, whatever the difference is, whether mm -hmm. it's five pounds or a hundred pounds. How do I decide what the capacity of my new hybrid truss is? Because I'm going to use these all together. Oh, sure. So, and it's, and it's done. I mean, cross rental happens all the time. The The general philosophy, and it's what I what I say in, in the classes I teach, you know, if you're mixing products, what you need to do is get all of the load tables for all of the products and compare them. And whoever has the lowest table, that is now the capacity of your span. Very important note with this, though make sure you're comparing the right load tables. So we, we mentioned ESTA earlier, we mentioned standards programs. I'm involved with the, the rigging working group and uh, we're right now we're actually nearing the end of the update on the, uh, the E1.2 standard, which is the truss manufacturing and inspection standard. Um, sorry, truss and towers. And one of the things that was, when that standard was first published in, 2000, 2001, it was written in the mid nineties. One of the things that, that they included and has been there since and is being heavily debated now is a reuse reduction factor. The idea being that um, a truss that gets used goes in and out of trucks on tour or for rentals or gets banged around a venue, gets moved around, gets used in different ways, is configured in different ways. Uh, the idea, theory was that that truss should not be considered to have the same capacity as a brand new 
virgin unused stick that's going to be put together and installed and never removed, never used different ways. It'll, it'll yeah. be loaded one time, great. And it's that fatigue factor we talked about. It, it, and fatigue plays into it. Fatigue, wear and tear, variability of use is a, a good yep. overall term. Um, and with that, what what the standard said was that if you're, for for trust will be you know used you know more than once will be, be you know in a, in various ways you reduce the, the then the allowed loads are reduced by fifteen percent a 0.85 reuse reduction factor and that's basically the the fudge factor the okay it, it it's it's a general accounting for the things we can't directly account for the the, the scratch on a truss the gouge that isn't bad enough to scrap it out things like that. So make sure the load tables have that. Now, one of the things that hasn't been in the standard that I'm pushing to get in, I think we'll make it through, is that manufacturers are going to need to put on the load table information as to whether as to what that table is. Are you looking at the one-time use right. table or not? Right. If it's not clear, then you need to call the manufacturer and go, "Hey, I'm looking at this load table. Is this a one-time use factor, or is this, you know, does it have the 0.85 applied to it?" So that's what you do. Um, and again, this to me is, is, is a reason to argue for the idea of, of standard tables for standard products. We'll, we'll see right. if it happens. Well, it's, it's clarity. It's transparency. Yeah. It's, it, it's, as you said, allowing the consumer to get the same information so they are comparing apples to apples and not apples to Pluots. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it, it should be a question of Fuji's versus Granny Smith's. Yes. Yes. Um, boy, that was, that was, yeah. food world coming through. Moving on. So one of the questions I asked the riggers and I'm going to ask you is when is one of the funnest projects you've worked on or a project that you're most proud of? Um, well, there are two different things. Um, the funnest project I worked on Yeah, I'd, I'd say the funnest would probably be, be that one. There's been a couple of cool. There's been some really cool ones. Um, funnest was probably this would have been for the Super Bowl in 2019. Yeah, 2019. They were up in Minneapolis. Um, I ended up being the the project lead for uh, a custom truss structure that we built to surround the Lombardi Trophy at the uh, NFL experience and players owner, players and owners event space. Um, and it was an octagon structure where every, it was, um, God, I don't know how many layers of trust. They built the thing and there was a ground supported piece that was on rolling casters that we built. It came up and had a sloping layer that ranged from I think eight to 12 feet off the ground. Um, Every other facet of it was covered in LED, programmable LED strips, video wall stuff, basically. The rest of it was graphics. And then there was an upper section that was flown that I think was 45 or 50 feet tall when it was all said and done with probably four courses of truss in it. Uh, and again, same thing where it was filled with LED video strips and graphics and the whole thing was flown and lit and it looked like a jewel box when it was done. Um, and it was just cool. That was a fun project. That was that was just neat and just absolute eye candy. Uh, by the way, by the way, I as a Patriots fan, I don't acknowledge that Super Bowl as having happened. 
Oh, was that the one where you guys got stomped into the dirt by that that team from Pennsylvania? Is that I the one? Either, I don't know what you're talking about. Wasn't that the one where, where, where the know. quarterback for New England was, like couldn't hold onto a ball and just kept getting beat into the ground? I, I'm trying to remember now. Is that right? I can neither confirm nor deny that there's part of me being in Florida <laughs> in the panhandle that wants to make a trip over to a certain location and go talk to Mr. Football and tell him how disappointed I am in his life choices. Oh, he's, he's, he's in that neighborhood now. That's right. Yeah. It's an yep. odd choice. Um, so that was one that was fun. The The thing I'm most proud of is uh, I built a new roof last year. Um, and I, we're not talking about on your house. No, no. I, that, that was eight years ago. Uh, no, no. Out, outdoor stage structure. Um, joined uh, Matt Panther is the owner of Reliable Design. Uh, and Matt has an extensive history in, in the trust and the entertainment industry. And... Um, We've worked together for a number of years. Matt Matt worked as a uh, Matt would at times be a contractor for me for projects when I couldn't get stuff built fast enough. He's a, runs a phenomenal phenomenal operation, um, and I've I've known Matt for about a decade or so now. But um, no, I came on board and you know I said you know okay what's the goal? He goes go you know go go after projects. I'm like all right see ya I'm, I'm gonna go do that. And I started in October, and in December, we had a contract to build a, a new outdoor stage structure for uh, the guys at Rocky Mountain Rigging up in, they're based in Montana, but this is for a venue up in uh, Boise, Idaho. It's actually the State Botanical Gardens in Boise. Uh, and what came out of it was a roof that uh, we named the R3, a reliable rigging roof. Um, and what it was was a, what I feel like was a, a home new approach to building temporary portable stage structures. Um, it's a rocking roof. We like it. Um, that one we built was 55 feet wide, 45 feet deep. I think we have it on six steel towers, 20 by 20 ish PA wings. Uh, and that roof's good for 65,000 over the stage and 20,000 aside for PA and video. Um, and what's cool about it is that it looks like a big steel roof has a big flat front profile. Um, but it's scalable. Yeah, that version's a 5545. It can be built 75 feet wide. It can be built 65 feet deep. It can be built with however many towers you want. It can be built with or without cantilevers. It's, it is, you know, one of the world's largest erector sets ever built. Uh, and it was, it started out, um, I was sitting at a bar with an engineer. I, I was, uh, I wasn't working for anybody at the time. I was just, I was up, I was teaching a class for somebody. I was sitting up in Chicago, I was talking with a friend of mine and I was out there at the bar napkin and sketched out a roof idea. And I said, I think I need to get this. I need to get somebody to buy this design so we can build it. And sitting at a bar over the course of an hour, I worked out the basic mechanics of the roof. And uh, what, nine, eight, nine months later, and it was, you know, standing in a field in Idaho and doing everything we said it could do and then some. Uh, what the heck was that? I I, I don't know. I train? Don't know. That's a train. Train. That's a train. Huh. Hi everybody. Le welcome to Almost Live Radio. Um when I do lift trainings, the wallet cards uh has a uh a ghost image behind it and it's actually of of that roof system. Um Cool. You, you, it, it, I don't know if you remember, I might have gotten you drunk, but you gave me permission to use that because I thought it was a pretty cool picture of awesome. the roof. Um, and it and I overimposed uh, the shadows of the different lifts that people get trained on. 
So awesome. Well, hey, you know, a little, little, a touch of immortality. Exactly. So, um, so the roof design and being configurable does bring up some of the interesting topics that we've talked about in a lot of, I say we as an industry, but you and uh, Jeff have talked about in online training recently about the the involvement of the engineer in your process. Mm-hmm. So often I'll talk about the fact that when I worked for the lighting company, we had a four post self climber. Mm-hmm. We did not have a skin for it. It wasn't a roof, but it was configurable. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of one of those tricky subjects of having a roof that is configurable but not so configurable that the user can get themselves in trouble by overloading it so is your design on your roof based on the fact that the user can say here's what the capacity is at this configuration or is there the built-in need to say to communicate with the engineer of record to say, here's what we're doing. And is this the capacity? How, how have you approached that on this roof? Well, I mean, it, it, it I've approached the way we, that, that roofs have been being approached. I mean, I, I learned, I learned a, a tremendous amount of what I know about outdoor structures and, and, and self climbing systems from a gentleman named Ian Coles. Um, Ian was one of the owners of, of total structures. He's been in the business forever. He's designed more insane shit on bar napkins than I ever will. Uh, he, 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 cold, he walked into a meeting cold at Nike and designed their, their main pavilion for the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. And it is to this date still the largest uh, freestanding temporary ground support entertainment structure that's been built. Uh, man's brilliant. The reality is, is that there isn't any sort of safeguard in there. Okay, It relies on having a, a system owner that understands, you know, obviously you're a rigger, you can, you can figure out point distribution on a grid, but they're not engineers. You can take the exact same roof um, with the exact same rig on it, and you're going to have a different set of requirements if you're building it on, you know, the sand dunes at, at Devil's Hill or Devil's Mounds in North Carolina, then you're going to have if you build it on the green in Boston, um, or if you build it in of all places Missouri. Missouri, I bring up because it has the most. Missouri has the first or second most active seismic zone in the country, in one little corner. Right. Go figure. Um, the reality is, is that every roof installation is a unique situation. Um, what's the local requirements? You know, are there local requirements? So, you know, as, as an owner of a system, you can have familiarity with the capacities because you've had an engineer of record do uh, some general case studies on a 50-foot wide, a 60-foot wide, a 70-foot wide, um, that 40-foot trim, 50-foot trim, 60-foot trim. Um, you know, it's an iterative process to gather data. And the only way to get it is to run models. And that means, you know, paying an engineer to sit there and plug away in, in, in whatever their modeling program of choice is that month um, and, and spit stuff out at you. Um, that's been the biggest change in the industry since 2011. 
is the realization that every installation really needs to be reviewed. Um, yeah. Period. And, 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 you know, we're it, every now and then people try to, to be clever and say, Oh, well we did the same thing this other place. Well, except for that video wall upstage or, Oh, well, you know, all those lights we had last time, they were 80 pounds a piece. Well, we couldn't get those this time. So now we're hanging 140 pound fixtures. Well, then it's no longer the same. Or and the then, weather is different. Well, yeah. What, what, what are our expectations? Um, you know, again, are we building it where we're concerned about prevailing winds off of the ocean? Or we're we building it somewhere where, oh, look, we're in Tornado Alley and it's July. Yeah. And if you haven't, uh, if you really want to get into some of the, the nitty gritty about ground support structures and other structures, there's a great book. I forget the author, but the title is Why Buildings Fall Down. I've heard about that. I've got to get a copy of it. I, I, we, I, that comes up in our classes all the time, and I've got to get a copy right. of it. But uh, there's there's something that I teach that I learned from Harry uh, Donovan, which is that a ground-supported structure is inherently more unstable than a suspended structure. And that has to do with gravity is trying to take the center of gravity of that ground-supported structure and knock it over. Versus a suspended structure, gravity is trying to take the center of gravity and put it underneath the hang point. Now, here's the caveats. The ground-supported structure or the suspended structure is either sitting or hanging from a structure itself that can deal with the load. So we're not talking about your building is going to fall down or your floor is going to collapse. So when we talk about these big roof systems, we're already dealing with the fact that it wants to fall down. So now we're trying to figure out how do we make it not fall down and then put on all these user-defined variables and still not make it fall down. Well, I, I don't know if I agree with, with that, that entirely because if the system is properly designed, for instance, you know, a roof system, part of that roof system design is going to be the, the, the guy wires and the ballast system which is being used to move those forces out. So I don't know that I totally agree with that. I think when Harry said that or wrote that, I think based on the prevailing thoughts in the industry, that made a lot of sense. Well, it's actually an engineering principle. So it, mm. it, it is a constant... Again, you're getting into micro versus macro. Um, That's what I the, do. Oh, so the point I was trying to make is that there are more challenges. Again, where are you starting from? Because obviously... Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, if, if, yeah, if I'm bringing the building, somebody else has already done all the math to make sure the building's not going right. to fall in on me. Right. Um, yeah, with a, with a, a roof or something, well, I am the building. Exactly. And maybe that's the point. Maybe that's a better way of articulating it is we're talking about a user-defined building versus user-defined suspension elements. Um, but it is it is something to talk about. And, and Jeff and I talked about you form that relationship with your engineer. That process of them doing calculations for you can get sped up if you yep. have, a, you know, your roof is always the same size. But what you're hanging changes. Well, they can already have the roof ready to go, yep. and it's just changing those variables. It's, that that was um, 
I mean, honestly, you know, when I started doing this stuff, there was there were a couple of engineers. It was Geiger. They did, I think they did a lot of mountain stuff at the time. They did a lot of uh, like the Broadway work. Uh, McLaren, but they were they were Broadway theater and, and they didn't bother with much of the entertainment. Well, except to a certain extent. They were installations kind of projects. Um, James Thomas had, a, their engineer was a one-man shop. I can't remember his name now. Um, Total had Emmett Anderson, one-man shop. Um, Tomcat had Park Hill Cooper and Associates, which was actually a, a firm. But they just kind of did the entertainment stuff as a, a thing. It wasn't like a group or anything. Um, you know, when you had, when Stephen Schaefer, when Sean Nolan went to work for Stephen Schaefer and Associates and set up um, what the time was called Entertainment Structures Group, was a, a, a division within the company for entertainment. Um, and then, you know, Jeff Reeder and Daniel Clark set up Clark Reeder. When you started getting these really, really specialized engineers, I, I have to say Theta Engineering out of Pennsylvania, Tim Franklin. He'll mm-hmm. beat me up next time I see him if I don't mention him. Um, you know, these guys really specialize in the entertainment world and they have a different mindset. Um, and again, after, after 2011, when, when people became much more aware of, oh, we're supposed to do engineering more, you know, Total had always sold rooftops with engineering. If, if, if you called up and you wanted to buy a roof, but you refused to buy engineering, we didn't sell you a roof. And that was the beauty of working for Ian Coles. He's like, I don't need your money that bad. Um, you know, now, if you were someone who already bought half a dozen rooftops and you were buying another one, we're not going to make you buy the same report. Okay, you're buying the same parts kit. And we know that you're smart enough that you're going to get the thing engineered. Um, but you know, if I, we tell people, look, what you're really doing is buying access to the engineer. They get to build the model, they have a file saved, and then when you need something at 3 o'clock on a Thursday for a Friday show, they'll be able to get it done for you. Um, right. That's what it comes down to. You know, it, it's you're, you're trying to get that guy to... to Take your call and go, okay, we can get you taken care of. No problem. Yeah. I think one of the things that we can take away, you've alluded to it, 2011 was the Indiana State Fair collapse. I hate talking. I'm sorry um, talking of it. Yeah. God. But I think one of the things it exposed was allowing us, it brought to our attention that we had to be better at knowing what we didn't know. Yep. And uh, I'll tell the listeners now, at some point in the future, and it may not be the near future, but at some point, we will do a podcast with a group of people, and we'll talk about that situation, because it's a it's a very important incident in our history, but it's also, uh, I mean, we're talking less than 10 years ago, and uh, there there are a lot of moving components to say, so... It's something where I'm working towards to, to facilitate. But the ultimate thing was there were a lot of choices made where people thought they were making the right choice. It wasn't necessarily all malicious intent, but people made mistakes and they, they, they thought they knew something and they didn't. And there's a lot of different things involved in it. There's engineering, there's people, there's personnel choices. There are a lot of different uh, resources out there. If you don't know what we're talking about, you can start doing some research about what happened. Um, and we're actually coming up on the the nine-year anniversary. Yeah, it's later this month. A couple of days from now. Um, I believe the 13th. So, uh, 
so yeah but that changed how we think about a lot of things especially with outdoor structures so uh good to keep it light there ethan good job yeah yeah good debbie downer um okay so i'll go the polar opposite direction and this is usually one of the last questions and i know you've listened to episodes so i expect you to be prepared so let's let's go with this one what is your best or worst rigging joke i don't man i'm, I'm not a rigger i don't have jokes i always tell people like they everyone's like oh you i'm like no i don't rig i've never rigged i've never pulled a point i hate climbing the best rigging joke yeah me trying to pull a point that'd be a pretty good joke that's about all i got <laughs> you and jeff said almost the exact same thing I, okay there is one thing we have to bring up here yeah something we have to bring up from from both of our sordid pasts that we don't like to talk about you and i actually crossed paths way before we knew it uh yeah we did and our listeners actually will probably uh kind of know what you're gonna bring up only in this subject because i've mentioned it a few times it, it has so, to do with a certain inter- entertainment industry yeah so yeah. I, I i at the start of this, i mentioned i worked for a lighting company early on uh i i started out work actually for uh bml stage lighting up in at the time raritan new jersey which if you know where that is then i guess congratulations um, that's, that's three of you <laughs> yeah pretty much that's a cool little town but um i ended up when I was there, I don't remember how this all started, but we got pulled into doing light. BML's done a lot of different things over the years. We got pulled into doing lighting for ECW Wrestling when it was the latest in the list of up-and-coming uh, wrestling organizations that were going to compete with uh, WW, whatever it is, out of Connecticut or it Florida. Was, it was the first pay-per-view. Yes. It was the first wrestling pay-per-view that was not at the time WWF or WCW, which yep. was Ted Turner's uh, attempt to yep. put Vince McMahon out of business. And I had been the lighting designer. I was still in college. I had been the lighting oh, designer God. for for a few years and Viewer's Choice was the pay-per-view provider. That's right. And yeah. justifiably so, they were a little nervous about the fact that they were about to... They, Viewer's Choice was funding it, I believe. Yeah. They were going to spend millions of dollars to produce this thing. And they're like, who's junior lighting? A college student? What the hell are you thinking? So they actually brought in... I believe ben. his name was Ben Wildman. Yes, Ben Wildman. He was, he was a designer out of Ohio. He had done some Saturday Night Live. Some well, uh, Ben Ben had been an LD for WWE, right? And he'd also been an LD for a lot of the HBO boxing stuff. Yep. Um, and I got I how did I get pulled into it? I think I got pulled in. There was an outfit out of King of Prussia, PA, called PMT Producers Management Television. They provided production management services for various television events, sporting stuff, whatever thing. And some friends of mine worked there as well. Somebody I went to college with was there. And, um, the, the woman who was the GM of the company, who now has like, I'm not kidding, 13 Emmys for her production work on stuff. Um, they're like, hey, we need, I'm like, yeah, sure. And, and we get, we put, this thing gets pulled together. They, I think they already had Ben and he knew the BML guys. And yeah, so we ended up actually, Ethan and I were in this terrible, horrible, old, nasty 
uh, and I'm being nice, warehouse building in South Philly near the docks. Bingo he, Hall. It's now called Viking Hall. Oh, God. Um, you, used to be able to go, you used to be able to drive by the SS United States. The, the last American luxury cruise ship was anchored right up the street. Yeah. Um, this place was terrible, but we, yeah, we, we, my company went in, we hung, we, we did all the lighting for this thing. I ran, I was one of the spot operators for the show even. Cause like my friends like, hey, you should go to work. And I'm like, yeah, why not? I, we were up, we were all there for like three days. It was, it was horrible. Yep. I almost broke my neck climbing down from the spot platform area. And I slipped and almost wiped out in, in a puddle of actual blood. Yep. Because they did fun things like barbed wire ring contests. Yeah. Um, yeah. Forget the, the the fake tables. No, no, no. They would string real barbed wire around the ring and and throw each other. And this was this was at least it was extreme championship wrestling. And yeah. yeah. So yeah, and it, it that's. Just, and and we didn't know it for no. years and years. Well, we, what, what, maybe three years ago it it came up. Yeah, three or four years ago, we were talking at one of the ESTA meetings, and something came up, and it was yeah, uh, it was it, it was kind of like oh oh yeah yeah yeah, and it brought back a lot of memories. Yeah, um, a lot of little angst and a lot of drinking to follow it to wash yeah. it all away. But I I tell people the, the one of the fun things of that show was we had uh, generators from Show Power, which oh, is yes. now Milton Cat, and we had dual eight hundred amp generators that were on a trailer. And just before broadcast, primary went down. So we ran the two, two and a half hour pay-per-view uh, on the backup generator. And 15 seconds after we went off the air, 15 or 30 seconds, the secondary went down. Yep. So we, so the crowds are going nuts. It's the first pay-per-view. Everyone's happy. The rest of the crew is like, oh my God, we survived. And it goes black. And yep. the only thing that saved us was that the entranceway was off of shore power. So I was able to turn on some of the pars, but that was it. Well, and well, I, I don't know if you remember, I doubt you remember this, but 20 minutes before cameras, all of a sudden the lighting rig starts acting up. So in addition yeah, to the regular par rig, we also had a ton of like 5k Fresnels and stuff for, for area light. Yep. And we were cooking the dimmer packs. Because yeah. it was a like a leprechaun, it was a bunch of leprechaun. Oh no, it wasn't leprechaun racks. It was uh, electrol packs. Electrol or TTIs? No, they were electrols. Because um, that, that's what the five K, the six K packs from them. One of our electricians is they were ripping screws out of the racks, yanking dimmer packs halfway out, and scrambling around to stealing fans from uh, like box fans from the dressing rooms. Yeah, and we're like, oh dear God, please let everything start cooling down. And it, it, oh my God, we've we've turned into a lighting podcast. Oh God, <laughs> but no, that but that that hall. No, no, I can bring it back to rigging here. That I can bring it back to rigging. That hall is the hall that made me despise crank up genie towers. Oh yeah, because we didn't have. So it's it's a small warehouse. It was maybe twenty feet. Yeah, yeah. The beach. Maybe, and we had PTR pre rig. Well, so. we we oh no, we we which, what we had was um, home home brewed thirty inch by thirty inch with square main cords. Uh, right. Horrible, this stuff was huge. We right, buried, it was it was big, but we had we motorized that 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 rig. But uh, the the reason I hated the genies was the house guy 
I don't know who he was. I can kind of remember what he looked like. But we're trying to get the cable. We didn't have enough motors or cable for motors or power or anything to get the, the cable pick up. Oh, so, my. So we're using the, were you there for this? Yes. Oh, so my God. I remember. picking up the cable bundle. And then house guy gets the brilliant idea. Oh, we're just going to push the genies sideways, take the swag out, and then we'll just you know crank them up and, and, and oh yes, and both and he's up. He's he is climbing the genie tower. He's climbing the genie crank up, and mm-hmm. over they went. And he jumps up and grabs the bar joist in the yep. ceiling and hangs there while one of the towers missed me by about a foot, missed another one I by about three really inches. Remember that. And that was, is my, where my hatred for genies comes from. And and I was sitting over on the bleachers with uh, Spike Dudley and some other people. Yeah, I totally remember that now. Yeah. Uh, I, I won't name the other guys that were there that I know were there, but uh, we're, we're like, okay, that was enough. Bad idea. Let's try something else. So, wow, the memories. Yeah. You'll be having flashbacks all night, I'm sure. All right. So I think we're good. I, I This has been great. This cool. this has been a lot of fun for me. There's been good stuff in here. And uh, just so that listeners don't go hanging, I'll give you a joke. I'll pull one out of reserve. This The, the lead-in is similar to a lot of different ones, but the punchline I guaranteed is different. What's the difference between God and a rigor? What? If you pray long enough, God will help you load the truck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that'll, that'll make you friends in uh, a couple of cities I can think of. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Elmer, thank you very much for spending some time with uh, me and the listeners talking about trusts and about fun stuff. And as always, we enjoy going down the rabbit hole and talking about the stuff and it's fun. Oh, this is a blast. This is good. Thank you, Ethan. I enjoy doing that. There's, there's some other stuff we can dig into if we want to, you know, go even further into the rabbit hole on some of this, some of these things. Maybe, I don't know if we can maybe, you know, bribe Jeff and maybe a few other people we can get a little, have some, it'd be interesting to get, no, it would be collusion if you got all the trust guys on one call. Yeah, yeah we won't do that. Won't do that. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> forget I forget I even brought that up. Never mind. We'll do a little round table. Be interesting. Um, yeah, absolutely. And as I said, uh, trying to create content for every week, it it's you know not an easy thing. So we'll have some repeats, but I'm trying to get through some some first time guests before I have to repeat. No, what, what, and the stuff you're bringing up is great. I mean, seriously, the, the, the topics you're digging into, um, there, there are things that, that, that people need to think about more. Um, you know, it, it's fun to hear though. You know, you know I'm, I'm sure, you know, Adrian in the history stuff and, and that it's fun. Um, but digging yep. into the, the meat and potatoes of it, of how we, how we, how we deal with these things. Why, you know, why is the answer? Cause we've always done this. Well, well, how, why, why was it done that way the first time? That's that's it's it's important for people to understand that yeah. this stuff wasn't. Yeah. yeah, maybe the first time was just pulled out of you know thin air, but you know afterwards people thought we went actually you know it's a pretty good answer. We should probably do that again. Um, so that's good. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I and and I learn stuff as I talk with these people, and other people get to learn things, and 
and it's fun. And, and the reality is what I'm doing here is no different from what we do when we get together for ESTA meetings and we're hanging out after I, meeting at the it, hotel bar. What ESTA meetings, trade shows, shows whatever, yeah. after loadout somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, we're, we're bringing those conversations to uh, a lot of people who aren't with us. And so I appreciate it. I'm sure they appreciate it. So it's, it's, it's great. So again, thank you, Elmer, with Reliable Design. Um, I don't have anything else. I don't know. You want to say anything before uh, I tell No, I, to... I, I think we're good. Um, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, everybody stay safe out there. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed episode 15. And until next time, keep the pin in the shack. Some... You know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger.